If you'll take your Bibles and open them to 1 Samuel chapter 12, it's on page 209 in the Pew Bible, if you don't have a Bible with you. But if you just don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to open there and follow along, but then also take that Bible home with you as our gift to you. Lucius Cincinnatus was born somewhere around 500 B.C. And if you've heard his name, even though he's long since gone in places like Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, it's because of what made him famous. And that is, he was appointed by Rome to be a dictator for a time. And the impressive thing about Cincinnatus was that after he had performed his service to the nation by fighting off the enemy threat to unify the nation, once that had happened, he went home. He returned to his farm and gave up the power peacefully. Now, the reason that that's recorded for us is because of how unusual that is. We have heard that power corrupts and that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so it's shocking to us when someone can be in a high position of power as dictator of what was then becoming the world power and yet give up that power when their civic duty had been performed. And what we're going to see in this text this morning is Samuel's transition of leadership to Saul. This is what's often called his farewell address, even though we'll see him a few more times throughout the book. Uh, This is something of a transfer of power. And given how it takes place, we're meant to notice the Lord's hand in it, but also to gain an appreciation and respect for Samuel, but more importantly for Samuel's God. Before we dive into this text, let's ask the Lord's help. Father, would you give us clarity, wisdom, and a great joy to come to your word, both to read it and study it, but also by your spirit we ask to apply it. We ask that you would give us grace and that you would be honored and Christ would be magnified. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be structuring this in three parts, past, present, and future. And the first is in chapter 12, verses 1 through 11, where we see past administrations. Past administrations. Pick up in verse 1. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth unto this day. Until here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and is anointed as witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron, and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. 
When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Asheroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. And you lived in safety. Now Samuel had worn many hats throughout his lifetime of national service. From an early age, he was established as a prophet of the Lord in a time when there had been a famine of the Word of God. He had called the people to corporate confession and repentance. He had interceded for them and led them in offering sacrifices, much like a priest. But even though the prophets and priests of Israel had authority and influence over the people... Neither one of those offices was associated with governmental leadership. As Samuel had taken up that responsibility as the nation's judge all the days of his life. But now with a king reigning over the people, he recognized that it was the time for him to hang that hat in particular up. And chapter 12 flows out of the events of chapter 11, but it's unclear whether or not, given the grammar that's used, if this farewell speech happens at the same time of them meeting to renew the kingdom there in Gilgal, or at some time later. But the, the timing isn't significant of what's actually happened. This transitioning that's taking place in the nation's governance. Under God, the leadership of the nation was moving from having a judge to a king. And the people had asked Samuel for a king, and he had given them one under the Lord's direction. But after Saul had been acclimated to his office following the military victory at Jabesh, Samuel took that as uh, the, the point to make the initiative to make the support of Saul unanimous. We noticed last time that there had been some uh, objections to his initial being appointed to rule. And now it should be noted that an administration change in the same form of government can be difficult. But changing forms of government altogether can be even more problematic. Just think about how this transition could have taken place if Samuel refused to give up his office. The fact that Samuel is not only willing to step down but actually helping Saul transition into leadership is meant to speak volumes to us about his character. And we see his integrity as he stands behind his entire life as a public servant. From his earliest days, he had endured a level of scrutiny that was unknown by virtually anyone else in Israel, and yet all the same, Samuel is able to say, I have been faithful as your judge. The books are being brought out and new management is taking over. But on Samuel's watch, the accounts balanced to the penny. 
He hadn't abused his office or his authority. All of Israel is able to say, you haven't wronged any of us in any way. Now, if you know anything about Israel's history or just about our human history, who else in Israel could that be said about? Not Eli, who came before Samuel, and not Samuel's sons who came after him. Samuel had walked before the people all his life in complete integrity, with an awareness that the Lord was the one to whom he would ultimately give an account. Samuel had set a standard for the leaders that followed him. But Samuel is doing more than just making sure all accounts are settled. He wants the truth to be established in their minds that since he hasn't led them astray up to this point, then it stands to reason that he wouldn't start now. And that matters because of the sobering words that he has for them in verses 6-17, through which we've read the first portion of. This isn't a parting shot from Samuel. He isn't here in his exit interview trying to hold on to control or bitterly letting them have it on his way out the door. He isn't bullying them or abusing them. He's telling them the truth for their good like he always has. And with an eye on their track record, Samuel knows that they need reminders. And we should hear his tone as communicating his deep love and compassion for them, much like a father to his children. He's pleading with them to listen because he wants them to thrive long after he's gone. And throughout their history as a nation, God had led them in perfect righteousness. And they had relived the same cycle, moving from sin to oppression to repentance to deliverance time and time again. And despite the ways that God had repeatedly helped them, delivered them, blessed them, they in turn forgot Him. And so He gave them over to enemy nations who afflicted them. But even that was a sign of His care for them to confront them with the truth about where their relationship with Him stood. He judged them as an expression of His love to draw them back to Himself. And yet the book of Judges is filled with the sad story of Israel's downward spiral into God-forsakenness. But this wasn't just ancient history for them. This was a pattern that was a part of their own personal experiences as well. They had made that same confession from verse 10 back in chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. And that's what Samuel wants them to see. That's why he references himself in the third person there in verse 11. If they're going to flourish as a nation under a new administration in a new form of government, then they needed to learn from their mistakes under past administrations. Samuel is helping to prepare the people for life after him. He wants them to worship and love the Lord. That was Samuel's legacy. So then ask yourself, what will your legacy be? 
Now, I realize that this can be a difficult subject for many of us to talk about because talking about our legacies means talking about what comes after us. And we don't always like to think about there being an after us. Our culture tells us that we can live and be young forever, but it's just not true. Friends, until Jesus returns, there will always be someone and something after us. If the Lord allows, we will all grow old. We will all be replaced by others who follow behind us at work, at home, in the church. Friends, our roles are temporary. Our lives on this earth have an end. Now, this isn't to say that our our brief lives fulfilling the, the little parts that we've been assigned are insignificant. Not at all. In the mystery and wisdom of God's design, the here and now of, and what we make of it matters forever. But we should live in such a way that our impact outlives us for the good of those we're leaving behind. Now in one sense, I want to acknowledge that we don't really have any control over the impact our lives have, ultimately speaking. God has his own unique plans and purposes for each of us. And we won't truly know the impact we've made until glory. However, we can rest assured that if we are committed to being faithful, our lives will have an impact long after we're gone. How we carry out Our responsibilities trains people in what to expect from the next person. We can either leave them with deep ruts that make them struggle to go in the right direction, or strong tracks that smoothly guide them where they need to go. Either way, we are leaving a legacy. So what kind of legacy are you seeking to leave behind? What are the kinds of things that you want to be said about you at your funeral? What kinds of things do you think, given your life to this point, will actually be said at your funeral? What will be said about your integrity? What will be said about your faithfulness? What will be said about your walk with the Lord? If our aim is to please the Lord, then the Lord will say on that day, well done, good and faithful servant. So then, church, let's make that the aim of our love for Him and our faith in what He has done for us in Christ. Next, we see present responsibilities in verses 12 through 18. Present responsibilities. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Amorites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice, and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, 
it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandments of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that He may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Now we were introduced to Nahash the Ammonite last week after Saul had been made king. But apparently he had been a problem for some time before then. And Samuel suggests that their request for a king was rooted in their desire for deliverance from this Johnny-come-lately oppressor. Now, the point belabored here, as it's already been made repeatedly in the last four chapters leading up to this point, is that Israel didn't need a king. They had a king. In fact, they had a great king, a perfect king. God was their king. He had delivered them from all kinds of oppressors along the way. He had provided for them, protected them, taken care of them in all kinds of ways, but they still went looking for someone else. They forgot Him. They forsook Him by crying out for a king instead of crying out to their king. And so as an act of judgment that He would use for their good, the Lord gave them the king that they wanted. As Saul fit the bill of the kind of king they thought would make them be standouts among the nations. He chose for their first king one that met the qualifications that they themselves had chosen. However, even though it, it wasn't wrong for them to ask for a king in and of itself, it was wrong because they were acting, asking for a king out of their rejection of God. But all the same, in His patient mercy toward them, the Lord was still going to bless them through Saul with a condition. If both king and country would follow the Lord. Now much like Moses in Deuteronomy 28 and Joshua after him and Joshua 24, both at the ends of their times of leadership, Samuel is setting before the people two starkly different paths there in verses 14 and 15. One path leads to blessing, and the other path leads to cursing. And the choice is obvious when you lay them out in comparison with each other. You say, okay, well, here are these two options. You pick one. But if they want to arrive at the right destination, then they had better follow His instructions precisely. And what are they? Fear the Lord, serve the Lord, obey the Lord, Follow the Lord and don't rebel against the Lord. Now, I imagine that none of those exhortations is is really shocking to you. That's the list that we kind of expect to find. They're the same commands that have been given to God's people from the very beginning. And that's the point. They have a new form of government. They are have a new king reigning over them, but nothing has changed in terms of their present responsibilities. They are still called to relate to the Lord in the same way as they always have. God is still supreme. 
God is still before all things and all people, including their new king. He is still the one that they are called to follow and submit to. And their king is intended to aid them in that. But sadly, as early as next week, we'll see that when forced to decide between following God and following their king, they must always choose to follow their Lord. And like before, if they won't do what's right, then the Lord will be against them much like before. Their new king isn't going to be able to deliver them from God. He won't be able to stop them from experiencing the oppression they faced before because it was the Lord who is the one who is in control over their king and their enemies. And so then the rules and their consequences are still the same. And just in case there was confusion about this, Samuel tells them that the Lord is going to give them a sign to confirm what he's just said. And they may have thought, wow, the old man, he's just off his rocker. Doesn't he remember that? Saul just triumphed gloriously over this oppressor. And that means, of course, that the Lord is pleased with our request for a king and Saul as king. But the Lord's thunder and rain at a time that it was both uncommon and undesired because the wheat would rot in the field, it proved to them that Samuel's words were true. They had sinned against the Lord in asking for a king accordingly. They respond by fearing the Lord in light of His holiness, in light of His ability to judge. Now church, we are just weeks away from another presidential election. I'm sure we have in this room a makeup of all kinds of different opinions and levels to which we hold those opinions. And I certainly don't intend to address them all here. But I do want us to see that like Israel needed to see, no sinful leader, whether president or king, can be our Messiah. Regardless of who is in the White House, our responsibilities to the Lord do not change. Fear the Lord, serve the Lord, obey the Lord, Follow the Lord and don't rebel against the Lord. The level of difficulty that we experience may be different with who's in office, but not our level of responsibility to follow the Lord above all. Over the course of, I don't know, say a couple millennia, in nations all over the world, with all kinds of different governments and leaders, God has built His church. In fact, the church has thrived in so many of the places around the world that would have been the most unlikely under every form of opposition imaginable, coming from the highest dictators on down. Why is that? Well, because Jesus is king over all. And as he promised, the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against his church. So absolutely, pray about who's going to be in office. Vote according to your conscience about who you think God's will will be best accomplished through. But rest assured, Christians... Even if the opposite of what you want happens, God's will will still be accomplished. 
So then may we be a church that's much more eager, much more passionate to tell others about the King Eternal than a temporary president. Finally, we see in verses 19 through 25 our future security. Future security. Past administrations, present responsibilities, future security. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Now, when the people saw what the Lord did, they believed what Samuel said. They had been confronted with the ugliness of their sin, and they were horrified by the prospect of God's judgment. And Samuel has clearly been confirmed as one in communion with the Lord, and so they appeal to him to intercede on their behalf before the Lord for mercy. And in this moment, they again openly confess their sins and recognizes that the wages of their sin is death. Samuel responds by telling them not to be afraid, but at the same time, he doesn't tell them everything's okay. He doesn't say, oh, don't worry. You know, it's, it's really not that bad. You, you're good people. You just made a few mistakes. No, that would be to make too much of them. The reason they're not dead where they stand, the reason that God has revealed their sin to them instead of simply just destroying them, which was in His rights to do, is because of how great He is, not how great they are. They had forsaken the Lord, but He would not forsake them. Why? Because of His own glory. As His people who bear His name, their identity as a nation reflected back on Him, like God's church today. And so now what's done is done. There's no going back to life before having a human king. The, the proper response and repentance wasn't to say, okay, well, we're done with Saul. Let's go back to a judge. And for the sake of God's glory among the nations, he was committed to redeem their sinful request if they would seek him now in it. Looking away from the Lord is what led them to ask for a king in the first place. And so now he's telling them that their eyes must be fixed on him and not their king. And this might have just felt, I would assume, a tad bit awkward for Saul as he's there as the king and they're saying, well, don't look at Saul. But this was something that Saul needed to hear too. The people had no business looking to Saul as their king in place of their God. 
because Samuel wasn't, or Saul wasn't their God. If they viewed him that way, or if he viewed himself that way, it would only lead to disaster. And so Samuel wants them to know that even though he will no longer be the nation's judge, he's stepping down from that capacity, he will not stop praying for them and teaching them the Word of God. He is committed to honoring the Lord by serving His people in whatever ways He can, but they are responsible to love the Lord their God with all their heart. They must fear and serve God with all they are because He alone is worthy of it. And Samuel wants them to reflect back on how the Lord had led them to get them to that point. How had He dealt with you, treated you all those years? And like their fathers before them, from back in verse 7, God's track record with His people had only given them reason after reason to follow Him. He had been nothing but good to them. And so obviously the right response would be to keep following Him. But if they refused... If they continued on in unrepentant sin by looking outside of the Lord for to be the one who would guide them, they would be given over and destroyed, just like they had been before, along with their king, regardless of their new change in governance. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, all of us, including you, have forsaken the Lord and rebelled against Him as our king. We have sought out those empty things warned against putting our hope in instead of trusting in the Lord. And because of that, we haven't just missed out on God's best for us, though that's true, but our relationship with God has been totally broken. And that brokenness means death. And that's what our sin has earned. But you see, if you're convinced of your sinfulness and then you also see your need of reconciliation with God, then God is revealing your sin to you even now, not to condemn you, but to call you to Himself. And Jesus is the only King worthy of your life because Jesus is God. He lived the perfect life, serving, obeying, and following the Father, even to the point of death on a cross for the sins of His people. He took on Himself the full wrath of God reserved for His bride and then rose from the dead on the third day to bring us back to God. And if you will turn from all those vain things that you've trusted in and put your faith solely in Jesus, then He will give you eternal life and a restored relationship with God. But if you continue on in your wickedness, much like verse 25 says, you will be swept away in judgment along with whatever you've trusted in when the Lord returns. Friend, may that not be true of you. Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus and you will be saved. And if you'd like to talk to someone more about this, I'd be honored to talk to you in just a few moments. Church, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same God is over all and He doesn't change. We don't honor God when we're frantic about the future. We don't please God 
when we put our hope in politicians. Our future is secure. And it's secure because of the one who holds it. Our hope is in God. And if you find yourself worrying about the ones that you'll be leaving behind when you die, if you worry that you haven't done enough to leave a lasting legacy, if you're discouraged by not getting to see the impact that your life has made, if you struggle to see what part you can possibly have left to play at this stage in your life, remember The same God is over all and He never changes. So then older saints, let me encourage you to follow Samuel's example there in verse 23. Please continue to pray for our church and the members of our church. Specifically, don't underestimate the power of your prayers and the lives of the people you're interceding for. And as you pray for others, you are expressing your love for them. And you are imitating our Savior who even now is interceding for you. But let me also encourage you to invest your life in younger members. And show us what following the Lord looks like in the years ahead of us. There is no substitute for life experience. And there is no way to get it without living it. But we can be better prepared to live it well by following the wise and godly counsel of those who already have. So at a time when you might feel that you have never had less to offer our church because you are physically unable to serve in so many of the ways you once did, on behalf of the next generations, your impact to us has never been more valuable. Thank you for your continued faithfulness to the Lord. Thank you for your continued commitment to our church, even in just fighting to continue being here. Now, this will look different for many of you, so I'm not trying to bind you on what you need to do. But let me just plead with you to leave a legacy of love for the Lord and His Word by pouring into the younger members of our church. Now, for the younger saints in the room, Until the Lord returns or calls us home, we will all fade into the background. We might feel like movers and shakers right now, but it will will become harder for us to move like everyone else eventually. And we should live our lives with an awareness of how fleeting they really are. And we should keep our eyes toward leaving a legacy that pleases the Lord and serves His people well. And one of the best ways I know to do that is to listen to the older saints of the church where God has placed us. Go change a light bulb. Go rake some leaves. Go fold some laundry with an older saint and then watch and listen. Now, if you need help figuring out how to go about this or you'd like me to facilitate, it would be my great joy to talk with you whenever you're ready. Now, loved ones, past, present, and future, our God is King. 
And may we stake our lives on Christ and leave a legacy that will last forever as we're gathered with all the saints around the throne. Let's pray. Father, we ask that that would be true of us. Not for our own glory. Not so that we would receive praise and accolade from man. But that we would hear from you, well done, good and faithful servant. God, thank you for the brothers and sisters that have gone on before us and left such a lasting legacy. Father, what a joy it is to be a part of a congregation that by your grace has been meeting (laughs) since 1842. I thank you for your mercy to keep for yourself a testimony alive and active. We pray that if it be your will, you would give us many more decades to serve you faithfully. And we ask that we would see our need of each other, the older and the younger, and that we would love you well by seeking to love each other best. We ask that you would give us grace to navigate, to have wisdom to know what that looks like, and that you would bless our efforts so that it would bear much fruit in our lives and the life of our community. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.